Well, good morning. Glad that you are here. Uh, we've come to that point in our sermon, uh, our service, excuse me, where we reflect on a portion of Scripture, which is a pretty traditional thing for Christian churches. We have been looking at some of the marks of a healthy and enduring church from First Peter. And this morning we get to look at a second section of First Peter, which talks primarily about a church which is holy. And so we will now read these section of Scripture that's going to come up on your screen from First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on, if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation if, if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you. The state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. These are the famous words of Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who as Prime Minister of Canada in the late 1960s introduced the most sweeping reforms of our criminal code ever seen with these words. The state has no business in the bedrooms of the nation. With those 11 words, Pierre Trudeau put into verbal expression the end of an era in Canadian cultural history. It was the end of an era when the idea of holiness 
was favorably received. By the late 1960s, holiness was a synonym for narrow religious judgmental attitudes towards people's personal freedom and a pharisaical tendency to demonize people who are different from normal. Our culture then, as now, craved freedom, personal freedom from any judgment, personal freedom from any normalcy, personal freedom from intolerance, oppression, anything. And so we've chased personal freedom from then until now. But we found out something in these last 50 years, and that is this, that being holy is not really the issue. Let me define holiness for you and see if it actually is the issue. Holiness is this. It means loving what is lovely and right, hating what is wrong and hateful, and acting accordingly. If that's the definition of holiness, we all still subscribe to it. Do we not as a culture believe that some things are worth loving? and therefore some things are worth hating? Do we not think that some things are worth fighting for and therefore fighting against? Do we not still believe that some things are worth changing for? Yeah, we do. The question isn't do we believe in that. The question is who defines what is lovely and worth fighting for and worth changing for? And the way that the gospel differs with the culture is the way Peter puts it here. Peter says, God decides, not me. God decides what is lovely, and I don't. You see, God is right and lovely by nature. God created us and knows us better than we know ourselves. God is infinitely wise and wiser than we are. Therefore, God knows better what is lovely, what is worth fighting for, and what is worth changing for, or actually in this case, as we'll see, who is worth changing for. And we're called to follow God after His pattern if we are His children, because Christians are children of a holy God. Peter says, Three things here to help us recover this idea of being a holy community. Three legs, as it were, of a stool. Firstly, your grace is worth waiting for, so be wise and put your hope in it. Secondly, holiness is worth fighting for, so be holy and fight for it. Thirdly, God himself is worth changing for, so fear him and be changed And then there's an application which we'll get to. Firstly, grace is worth waiting for, so be wise and wait and put your hope in it. Verse 13, the very first verse, look at your bulletin or your Bible, depending on what you've got open there. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter starts this passage with a therefore. Going back to what he had just previously said, if you were here last week, you may have remembered. What he said last week was this, realize and embrace the fact that you are exiles. 
Rejoice in the glory of the salvation brought to you by Jesus. Reframe your sufferings as servants and tutors to help mature you and reprioritize your faith as central to your identity. That was what he said last week. Now he says, therefore, in light of all of that, Peter says, let's think deeply and let's think clearly. The word here is literally take a belt around your mind, roll it up your sleeves, and let's think hard. Because what we want to do is use mental self-control and focused thinking so that we may set our hope fully on a grace that is future, not on a reality that is present. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus will come back one day. Your grace will be consummated on that day. It is certain. His resurrection gives us a 100% confidence in the certainty of his promise. He rose from the dead. He is who he said he was. He can be trusted for what he promises. He promises to come back. It may never come in our lifetime. It has not come yet. We may spend our life in social marginalization, relational rejection for being Christians, but this promised future grace is certain, and it's superior to the reality that we confront in our lives today. Listen to the world we will inherit, men and women. Because in his return, everything that your heart longs for, everything that your desires groan for will be met and more in the revelation of Jesus. Firstly, you will get an imperishable, perfect body. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, the body we have right now, is perishable. We will die. It, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It will be raised in power. Men and women, you are going to inherit a perfect body. I don't know about you. I know my body is pretty close to perfect. I don't know how you feel about yours. (laughs) Don't you long for a perfect body? If you say no, you're lying (laughs) because you do. We long to be free from disease and death and wrong and sin and decay. We will get that freedom. Secondly, our perfect bodies will inhabit a perfect unbroken world. Revelation 21, at the end of the books of the Bible, we hear this certainty. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear, every tear, from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more. 
nothing anymore except joy evermore. Set your hope fully upon this. It is more certain than any future you hope for, and it is superior to any future this world can give you. The word hope here means a confident expectation that changes how you act now. Let your hope for future inheritance and glory change the way you face your present because the present challenges will fade and diminish in the light of this glory. It changes the way we live now. It's supposed to. And by the way, this is precisely where our culture has trouble with the gospel. There's a collision here because in our culture, we believe that this life is all there is. That's natural because as a first principle, our culture has decided we don't think God exists. And if God doesn't exist, then this life is all of reality and there is nothing more. Your life is all you have. And if it's so, then it is logical for us to try and squeeze every bit of our groaning, every bit of our longing, every bit of our hunger for significance and success and pleasure into this world and this life. It's totally logical. It just isn't true. Because Jesus rose from the dead as a matter of human history. God, who created the world, sent his son into that world to redeem it by dying for it. And he died and bringing God's grace into it. And then he rose again to triumph over sin and death. He brought grace and truth into the world with him. And he let it rain when he rose. He was the grace of God incarnate. And so we know that God does exist. Jesus proved it to be so. Now, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, I want you to take your skepticism and increase it. Don't just be skeptical of Christianity. Be skeptical of your culture's claims that God doesn't exist because he does. And if he does, everything that our culture has built on the foundation of him not existing should also be vetted and questioned. If we will meet God, if there is life after death, and Jesus proved it by rising from the dead, this life is not what they're, the end of all things. We will meet God We will live for eternity, either with him or without him, depending on whether we've trusted in Jesus. If you're here and you're investigating Christianity, doubt that your culture is right when it says God doesn't exist because Jesus proved he does. And Jesus is him. Christian, I need to ask you, what are you living for? More precisely, when? are you living for? Are you living for the life here and now? Check how you spend your money. Are you generous giving it away in service to others in the flourishing of the city and the culture because it's not your final inheritance? Or do you need it? Check how you spend your time. Jesus is saying through Peter, if you want the power to break the addictive call of the culture, 
to maximize your pleasure and your success and your recognition here and now, you must learn to put your hope in future grace, a grace to be revealed. And I know it's hard. I find it hard. I tend to live in the present just like most of us. But history proves that it can be done. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, we hear a story of people who have gone before us, who have believed before us, who died in faith for our witness. And the writer of Hebrews says this in summarizing all of these people like Abraham and Jacob and all these people. He says, they all died in faith not having received the things that were promised, but having seen and greeted those things from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd come out, they would have gone back and had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a superior country. That is heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city which is coming to them in the future. We stand in the presence, men and women, of witnesses who are looking down upon us, who live this way as a template for us, who desired a better country, a future city. And so should we. Grace is worth waiting for. Grace is worth hoping in. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. Grace is worth waiting for. Secondly, holiness is worth fighting for. So fight for it. Next verse, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you will be holy for I am holy. Peter now moves to a specific application of what we are supposed to do when we set our hope fully. We are to be holy as God is holy in all our behavior. G.I. Packer, one of my favorite authors in his book, Recovering Holiness, said, God, in whose hands we are, is in the business of holiness. Three things stand out here from Peter's admonitions. Firstly, what does it mean to be holy? It means not to be conformed to our former, our passions of our former ignorance. You see what he's saying? We're to hate things. We're to fight against things. We're not to be conformed to things. Things in us. Things that are selfish, things that are filled with pride, things that are filled with envy, things that corrupt us, things that are evil, but are still part of us. Men and women, the fight is within. Peter is saying to these Jewish Christians, when you were not Christians, you were Jewish, you were pretty religious, and you were filled with inner darkness. Don't confuse the issue. We're all filled with pride. We all fall into envy. We all get selfish. We all get self-absorbed. And we think that's just being human. And it is just being human. But men and women, to God, it's just being subhuman. It's something we're not worthy of and he wants to take out of our lives. 
Wherever you are in your life, wherever you are in your faith journey, admit the darkness, the selfishness, the envy, and the pride in your heart. That is a first step. The fight is that fight against that. I find that non-religious people and very mature Christians tend to be very open about the sin in their lives, but most of us struggle with admitting it. We don't like a fight, and we don't like to look ourselves in the face and see the darkness in us. But it's a fight, and it's relentless. Quick side note, to those of us who are Christians, we're called to fight sin and hate sin, not hate sinners. Christians have been too often those who demonize others who don't share their faith and hate them, it seems. We're not called to do that. God so loved the world. And in the context of John chapter 3, it's a world that's rejecting him, that he sent his only son into that world that was rejecting him, and the son went and died for the world that was rejecting him. You see, God loves sinners, or he wouldn't love anyone, because such are we all. And if you're here and you are new to the Christian faith or investigating the Christian faith, you need to hear this. When Christians talk about hating sin and fighting against it, they're not trying to be oppressive. They're trying to be honest about their own brokenness. And they're not trying to hopefully demonize anybody. And Christians, if we are, if we're blaming others or demonizing others, we're not getting the fight. Hate the sin in you. Start there. And then if you want to look at sin in others to complain about, take a look at that sin and ask yourself, is that in me? Yeah, because it is. We have no right to hate people. Just the sin which defaces and addicts and breaks people. Do not be conformed to our, the passions of our former ignorance. Second thing to note, be holy in all your conduct. This is very uh, convicting to me. It's actually pretty wearying. For God's desire for us is total holiness. Not superficial holiness that's just visible to others, but the holiness that pervades all of our thoughts and desires. You and I both, well, you and I both, there's more than one of you here. You and I all know that there are gardens in our heart, secret gardens. I think the Japanese call it the third garden. The, the garden that only you know about where your secret longings and desires, hidden from everyone else, rest. But you're not alone there. There's a garden that God knows. And he knows the things that you nurse. The quiet, dark, proud, self-seeking little things that you don't even want to admit to anybody. God knows them. And he's saying, it is time to throw them away. It's time to say, go away and never come back. Those of you who've seen the two towers, you know I'm doing a very bad imitation of Smeagol. When he was confronting himself, Gollum, and telling Gollum to leave him. And if you've seen the movie, you know that he dances a dance of joy because men and women, that's true freedom. Not freedom to do whatever I want, but freedom from the desire to do whatever I want and only the desire to do what is right and good. That is true freedom. 
Thirdly, we do this as obedient children. Our identity should drive our response. Peter says at the beginning of the sentence, you are children of a holy God. Then at the end of it, he says, God is holy and he is our father. You see, in this culture here, there was no higher praise you could give a child than they act just like their parents. And there was no praise that would please a parent's heart so much as to hear they act just like you. Now, in our culture, that's more complicated. A lot of us have difficult relationships with our parents, often our fathers. I know. I had one. These words are hard. Too often, I've looked at God as my father through the lens of my relationship with my father and struggled to see him rightly. But men and women, that's the whole point of the gospel here. This part of the gospel is trying to redeem fatherhood and tell you stop looking at God your father through the lens of your own father. Look at your father through the lens of the true father. Because this father, the template of all fathers, is the one who came and rescued us. The one who had tender, kind, and gentle mercy upon us. The one who sent our older brother, Jesus Christ, to the cross to bring us back to himself. He rescued us. Don't judge God through the lens of your experiences with your earthly father. Judge those experiences through the lens of the true father. We're his kids by his kindness. Pursue holiness in all that we do because we're obedient children of a holy God. Grace is worth waiting for. Holiness is worth fighting for. You are obedient children of a holy God. So be holy as he is holy. Thirdly, God himself is worth changing for. Verse 17 says this. And if you call on him as father, he picks up that theme again. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Interesting. He has just switched from father to judge. But he wants you to hear this. To become holy is to become willing to change your whole manner of being, to change all that you value, all that you love, all that you strive for, because he's your father. The gospel has a term for this. The technical theological term is repentance. It's what fueled Martin Luther and the whole Reformation. When Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg in the 1500s, 1516, we think. The first of his 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so we need to learn to change, which means to turn away from our sin. Repentance means to make a 180. You're walking in a certain direction, you turn around, and you take your whole manner of life and go in the other direction. It's a lifestyle. It means turning to God regularly, asking him to strengthen us, to align ourselves with him, and to obey him. Now, again, there's direct tension with our present culture. Because in our present culture, with the rise and triumph of the modern self, 
our feelings are the best identifiers of who we are. So our emotions and feelings and desires are the most authentic and dependable indicators of who we should be. And therefore, our our identity can be understood most authentically by those emotions and desires. And personal freedom should be, in our present culture, the ability to change our world to accommodate those inner emotions and desires. Change my status in life, change my gender, change my whatever to align with my inner feelings. But in the gospel, we meet a God of infinite wisdom who knows what is best for our flourishing flourishing of everyone else who knows what is lovely and what is not. And this judge says, this father says, I see all things. I know all desires. I know all thoughts. They must align to me because I will judge what is right and what is wrong. Miss this not. This one reserves the right to judge what is right, what is wrong. This one says to our feelings, you have overestimated your importance. God says, do not fear disappointing yourself. Fear disappointing me. Men and women, fear him. He will judge you. And he misses nothing. And his standards are infinite. He is infinitely repulsed by our selfishness. And we have a lot of it. Men and women, he says, change. Don't make excuses. Change. Fear displeasing me. Be measured by whether you follow my desires. This could be a sermon all in itself, but here's the heart of the issue. God desires holiness, and holiness at its root is loving God enough to follow and love what he loves and to hate what he hates. That's holiness. And I have to admit to you that that's hard. And I have to admit to you that as true as it is, it doesn't excite me in the morning all the time to go and do what he says. His innate worthiness, for some reason, doesn't warm my soul the way it should. But I'm not alone. This sense that it's a treadmill that just goes faster and faster and that I can never get off and I can never run fast enough to please him is wearying. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest moral philosopher and theologian in North America I think has ever produced, agrees. Hear his words. Seeing God's holiness will not stop us 
from resisting God. The opposition of the heart will remain at full strength, whereas one glimpse of the moral beauty and glory of God and the supreme amiableness, that's an old word for loveliness, of Jesus Christ shining into the heart overcomes and abolishes all opposition and inclines the soul to Christ by an unstoppable power. Here, at the summit of Peter's passage, Peter then gives you the summit of his reasons why God is worth fearing. Are you ready? He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here we go. God has sent his precious son, more precious than silver or gold, his eternal son, foreknown from the foundation of the world, his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God willingly sacrificed his beloved eternal son. And his son willingly came into humanity and allowed himself to be arrested, tortured, crucified. Why? Because they both wanted you and I to be in his family. Because Jesus wanted the joy of eternal communion with you as your, as his brothers and sisters. He died and broke communion with his father so you could come into communion with his father and with him. And then he rose again to allow you and I to rise above death and above the addiction of sin and have eternal communion Forever he shed his precious, his infinitely holy, infinitely precious blood for us. So precious was his blood that one drop of his blood would suffice to forgive the debt of every single human that ever existed and would ever exist. Why did he shed his blood? This is why. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear this? Jesus, who tells us to set our hope fully on the future grace that will be revealed to us when he comes again. Jesus himself, facing his own death, looking it in the eye, despised the shame of his death because of the joy of the future grace, not that he would receive, but that he would unleash upon you and upon me. He, for the joy set before him, set his hope fully on that grace that he would give and allowed himself to go to death and turned to his father and aligned with him and said, let not my will be done but yours. Men and women, are you willing to follow your Savior? And for the joy set before you, go to your death, the death of your passions and your lusts, your lust for your career, for your artistic reputation, for your academic ex- Let your lusts go and allow the death of your idols that you may experience the joy of future grace. 
God is holy. The infinitely holy Father sent the infinitely holy Son to an unjust, unholy death, a death that paid the debt of unholy sinners, you and me, so that we could commune with a holy God in holy joy forever. That's the gospel. Why? Because their hearts toward you are infinitely warm, tender, and loving. I used to be a Star Trek fan back in the day. I used to wish I could get on the Starship Enterprise and, you know, tour the universe. Some of you do too. Don't you wish you could get on a Starship like the Enterprise and just go see galaxies that no one has seen before? I tell you this. You can get on a Starship Enterprise if it existed And you can tour the universe if you wanted. And in all the universe, you would never find a heart as kind, a soul as beautiful, a nature as gentle and filled with mercy and grace as that of Jesus Christ and his Father. And this is what Peter has to say to you and me. I know you're called to fear God. Let me show why he's worthy to be feared. He's the God who gave his beloved son for you. Have your hearts warmed by this greatest truth. Allow his holiness and his grace to come together, for at the cross they were fused inevitably, inexorably, and imperishably together. There is no fear of God rightly understood that doesn't have both his holiness and his grace combined. We are redeemed by the precious blood of God the Son incarnated in Jesus Christ. And he is worthy to be feared and we should be willing to be changed. Are you? Are you willing to let go? Are you willing to fear God enough to say, not my will but yours be done? As his son did, in Gethsemane to purchase our redemption? Will you let God remake you into his beautiful image? Will you let his tender soul become yours? Will you let it warm your heart and take the grip of your hands on those things you think precious and let those hands open? This question faces all of us. When I was a skeptic, In university, the fundamental question I had when I was looking at Christianity was, am I too afraid of giving up control of my life? Or do I trust God enough to fear him enough to let go and let him take control of my life? Christian, it's the same question that you have. Am I willing to let go? About 17 years ago, I came back from Melbourne, Australia, which if you've not been to, I think is probably the greatest, most livable city in the world. And my church in Florida had sent me there to see if we should plant a church there, and they should send me. And it was a resounding yes in my heart. The the city needed churches, 
the, the opportunity was there. I had a church planning coach all lined up. We had missionaries that were going to help us. It was fantastic. The problem was I had a woman who disagreed with that. She thought I should go to this place called Toronto. That woman was my wife. Now you have to understand, I grew up in Montreal. Do you understand what moving to Toronto and making home in Toronto means to a Montrealer? <sighs> and not only that, I had lived a previous 10 years in Vancouver. Do you know any two cities that hate Toronto more than Montreal? Okay, maybe Calgary's in the mix, right? Toronto, it was like going to Mordor for me. And you have to understand, I was a hockey fan. I grew up with multiple Stanley Cups. No offense to you Toronto people, but you know, I would have to become a Maple Leaf fan. <sighs> Not my will, but thine be done, Lord. But men and women, becoming a Maple Leaf fan was nothing compared to when God asked me to give up my anger, my impatience, my desire to always be seen as competent, my idol of respect. Being a Maple Leaf fan is nothing compared to giving those up. Not my will, but thine be done. How about you? What is God asking you to give up to be holy? Finally, he says here, application. You, you'll know a church is a holy church when it does this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, gone through and really agreed to be holy, for a sincere brotherly love, there's the purpose, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Hear that? Love one another earnestly. Here's the application. Here's the snapshot of a holy church having purified themselves from their former desires to newfound obedience to their father, they love one another earnestly. The Greek word for earnestly there implies not some emotional love. The, the definition is something like pertaining to an unceasing activity normally involving a degree of intensity and perseverance. In the gospel, love is not an emotion. It's a decision of the heart, the mind, and the will. It means the hard work of being known and knowing others, of trying to find out what makes the other person flourish and relentlessly working toward it, even if you don't even like them that much at the moment. Hmm. This is our call, men and women, to be a family of faith that together by our love shows the world a different way of living and being. So let us take this family day and become more of a family. Let's start the hard work of being known and loving one another. Introverts, learn to love those crazy people called extroverts. <laughs> Caucasians and Asians, let's do the hard work of reaching outside our insularity and our ethnic comfort zones and loving and brothers and sisters from other backgrounds. Single people, let's get outside of our bubble and learn to love young parents, even with kids that throw up on us. Empty nesters, stop looking at those single people like dissolute young uns that can't do anything right and help invest your lives in them. Young people go to older people and go, Mentor me. Let's be a family. 
You see, when you look inside yourself and see those dark thoughts, attitudes, and desires, you're sickened, and you start to long for the future day when the sin will be taken from you. The world becomes wearying and sad. When that begins to happen, the grace of God that is future becomes far more precious and beautiful. And when that happens, you want to follow the one who is worthy and submit to him. It's all interdependent. And ladies and gentlemen, when that happens to us, we will become something peculiar, something we would never say of ourselves. But God said of people like ourselves, because near the end of Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrew puts it about all these people who died in faith waiting for another homeland. He said, they suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment, Verse 36, verse 37, they were stoned, they were sewn, sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, people of whom the world was not worthy. Men and women, at the end of the day, we have two choices. Our lives will look like this. Either we were people who kept trying to have the world tell us we were worthy, or people of whom God will say, of you the world was not worthy. Which will you choose? Will you be people whom the world wants to call worthy? Or will you be people whom God says, of whom the world is not worthy? Children of a holy God, be obedient children and be holy and be men and women of whom the world is not worthy. Let us pray. Father, thank you and I praise you that you are the one, the one of whom the world is not worthy. It never was, but you came into it because you found us worthy. Worthy of your life and your death and your resurrection and you sending your spirit and your prayers. How did you find us worthy? We are not. We're so grateful that you who alone were worthy somehow found us worthy enough to die for, to rise for, that we might be changed into the image of you. Help us to do that. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Is there a synonym for fear? that I could share with you. Awe-filled gratitude. What makes you believe Jesus dying and rising is true from a historical perspective? Because I studied it from a historical perspective. I have a minor in history, and when I was in law school, I studied the resurrection from a legal and historical point of view. And it is 
a fact of history. Great question. I, I've told someone that I'm supposed to hate sin but love the sinner, but they come from an alternate lifestyle and they say, hey, how, how can you say you love me when you don't accept me for the person I am, which is my sexuality? I have to say this to my LGBTQ plus friends. Every time I talk to them and they bring this up, and they do, how can you say you love me when you disagree with my choices? I tend to say this, how can you say you love me when you disagree with my disagreement with your choices? And they just look at me, because they're doing exactly what I am. They're disagreeing with my choices. The second thing that we need to recognize is, if you are here, whatever your sexual orientation or preference, that isn't the fullness of your identity. You're confusing preference and sexuality with full identity. And you're saying, I'm rejecting you in full because I'm rejecting some part of your choices. They're not the same. My sister rejected my Christianity for a long time before she accepted it. I never felt like she was rejecting me as a brother. I just felt like she was rejecting my faith. It was hard. My faith is very central to me. But there was a difference. So that's what I would say to that. Are you happy? Absurdly. Are you? <laughs> On that slightly discordant note, we will get back to the Holy One, who now offers us a holy meal of beautiful grace. <laughs>